0: How great is his faithfulness. Good morning, everyone. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Maxwell. I serve as one of the pastoral assistants here. It is a pleasure and an honor to be in God's Word with you this morning. Uh, If you brought a Bible here this morning, you you can go ahead and turn in that Bible to page 246, and the Pew Bibles will be in 1 Samuel chapter 24 if if you brought a copy of God's Word with you here today. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, you can feel free to take that Pew Bible, make it your own, write notes in it. It, put your name in it, draw pictures, do, do what you 'd like with it, uh, but that 's where we 'll be in god 's word this morning uh, we 'll begin reading in just a moment, but a few uh, kind of introductory remarks on this passage before we get going because we 're really jumping into the middle of a story here. Uh, so first and second Samuel kind of chronicle king david 's life and times, but they begin with the raising up of god 's prophet Samuel to judge the Israelites. Eventually, however, the people demand a king, and in doing so, they have rejected God as their king over them. And so God gives them the desire of their hearts, a king like the nations have. In 1 Samuel 8, we hear that the people want a king so that they'll be like the nations, something that they shouldn't want as God's special people, but they also want a king to judge them, to go before them, to fight their battles, all something that the God of the universe wanted to do for them. So God gives them Saul. Saul is tall, he's strong, he's charismatic, and he's furious in battle. But as expected, this doesn't go the way that people want. You see, when we choose our king, instead of letting God choose our king, we kind of get what we ask for sometimes. See, God warns the people in 1 Samuel 12 about what will happen if they and their king don't follow God. See, disaster will surely come upon them. And sure enough, this is what happens after Saul experiences some early success in battle and takes the throne. After only two years as king, he breaks the religious law by offering an unlawful sacrifice. He jeopardizes the safety of his kingdom by not pursuing the Philistines. He almost kills his son over a foolish vow, and he eventually lies to the prophet Samuel about his conduct with God's enemies. See, as the king, he's supposed to be the guy who's most in touch with God, representing God to the people and the people to God, but here he is disobeying God at every turn. But all is not lost, as God has the prophet Samuel anoint another king, David, in Saul's stead. In 1 Samuel 15, God informs Saul through Samuel that the kingdom will be taken to him and given to a king after his own heart. God is so merciful. You see that... Even though his people put a wicked king on the throne that belongs to God to rule over them, and they land themselves in a world of hurt because of it, God brings up another king from amongst them, a humble servant after his own heart, who will eventually ascend to the throne and usher in an age of prosperity and blessing through his faithfulness. See, if we're paying attention, this should all sound very familiar, shouldn't it? should point us to the greater story that we're all a part of. A story about how God plans to overturn the wicked rule of a tyrant, vanquishing his enemies and establishing a fruitful kingdom for the harmony of his people by reigning over them through a king who loves and follows him. A king after his own heart. But today we find ourselves in a very different part of David's story than we're used to hearing about. See, we're used to hearing about perhaps his moral failures, Perhaps David's great trust in God, his victory over giants, his zeal for God displayed in mighty acts of valor. But here we see him on the run from Saul, anointed as the future king, but not yet on the throne. And he's alone, he's scared, he's tired, he's hungry, he's hopelessly outnumbered. But here we learn no less important lesson from David's life. That is, that God's king gets the throne in God's way. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog... After a flea, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that this is your breath and it comes to us preserved without any mixture of air and in our own language so that we can read it. Uh, Father, we pray that by your spirit, your word would till deeply in our hearts. God, we pray that... Our hearts would be fertile soil for the seed of your word this morning, Lord. We pray that you would sow it in us and that the enemy would not steal it from us, Lord, and that the uh, cares of this life would not choke it out, but that this word which you sow in us this morning would produce great abundance of harvest, tenfold, twentyfold to a hundredfold. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this morning over your word would be pleasing in your sight, Lord God, and that they would result in a growth of true gospel fruit. Father, we pray for any here who have not trusted in this gospel of your Messiah, Lord, that they would turn from sin, that they would see the mercy that Christ extends them, they would repent and trust in Christ for his mercy, Lord, that they may have eternal life in his name. In his name we pray. Amen. Our time in the word this morning will be broken up into three simple points. First, we'll see the kings in the cave, and then we'll see cutting corners, and third, the tables turned. That's the kings in the cave, cutting corners, and the tables turned. Look with me in verses 1 to 3 as we see the kings in the cave. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, "'Behold, David is in the wilderness of En-Gedi.' Then Saul took 3,000 of his chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So here we have David, who's the celebrated hero of Israel at this point in the story. He is the anointed one. He's the rightful king, but he's on the run from the tyrant Saul. See, it didn't take long after David was anointed and became loved by the people for being a mighty warrior that he was no longer safe in Saul's court. To escape Saul's murderous plots, David has taken to living in the wilderness with a small band of 600 warriors. In the earlier chapters of this book, we read that Saul is growing more and more desperate to dispatch David. Saul puts a city of priests, their wives and their children and livestock to death for helping him while David and his men in chapter 23 save a city from a band of attacking Philistines. And there we read that Saul was providentially delayed in his pursuit of David by having to address another incursion of Philistine raiders into his territory. But now back on his trail, Saul, with a very small group of elite soldiers, has tracked David to a small area on the western shore of the Dead Sea to caves normally used for keeping sheep and their shepherds out of the heat of the day. Now Saul briefly stops chasing David to relieve himself in a cave, and it's the very cave that David and likely just a small group of his close and personal friends are hiding inside of. So notice here the juxtaposition. Here we have Saul on the one hand, he's a murderer, he's a blasphemer, he's a liar, and he's relieving himself. And then we have the true king of Israel, anointed, but not yet exalted. He's hungry. He's tired. He's afraid. He's so far from his kingdom. He's in a place meant for animals when he should be in the throne room. He's in the dark of a cave when he should be in the palace. What went through David's mind when he saw Saul step into that cave? See, David, right, was the one who was used to tracking down lions, And bears who had stolen one of his sheep, he would go to his cave and he would kill it. But now David is the sheep. Now David is the hunted one and the lion's right on top of him. So where's David's shepherd? Where's David's God? What was going on in his heart? Well, if you look in Psalms 57 and Psalms 142, one of those Psalms which we read from this morning, you can see exactly what David was thinking. These Psalms 57 and 142 were written about David's time in the cave. And see, we don't have a picture of David here saying, you know, uh, God is my shepherd, and so it's, it's all okay. You know, it doesn't matter that I'm being hunted for my life. No, we have verses like, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. See, he's crying out to God most high, to God who he trusts will fulfill his purpose for him. See, God took David to the farthest point from being king, where David felt like he had no hope except God's steadfast love, no refuge except God's faithfulness, and no hope for deliverance except God's mercy. But David, as the example of God's chosen king, points us forward to Jesus Christ. I mean, so many times in Jesus' life did he find himself so far from his father's throne. So, In the place of darkness. So in the place of animals, where he was hunted by men, hunted by animals, hunted by demons. I mean, this is exactly what we celebrate with Advent, right? The firstborn over all creation. The firstborn of a peasant family. From the throne room of God, where eternal fire issues out of it, with blue azure floors, with an unbroken praise of angels around him all the time in a cattle stall, in the place of animals. See, this was Christ's path to his exaltation. This was Christ's path to taking the throne as God's chosen king or over all of his people, just like it was David's. So we should take heed here. We should be warned that if we think we have a relationship with God, but God is not allowed to take us certain places— We should be really careful. We should think to ourselves, do I really have a relationship with God if there are certain places where God can't take me? If God can't take me to the cave? If God's not allowed to take me to the dark? Is our relationship with God just about getting what we want? Is it all good as long as God is giving us what we want, as long as life is good? But let me also encourage you, Christian, that being in the dark, being in the cave, Victimized does not mean that God does not love you. And it does not mean that God does not care for you. Time and time again, we see in Scripture that those who go after God's heart often find themselves victims. They find themselves alone and feeling despair. I mean, this shows us that we have to be so careful to interpret God's providences not as barriers to our happiness or moments where God has forgotten how to love us, Moments where God is unsure about how to care for us or what's best for us, but rather as testing on our way to our exaltation. See, you might not think that you have a lot in common with King David or if you have a lot of with common uh, with Jesus, but let me assure you that you do because Christ lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you were supposed to rise, that you were supposed to die, and rose from the dead and ascended on high to take his throne over all creation and anointed you with his spirit, you also are on your way to your exaltation. you also are on your way at the last judgment to taking a seat with Christ ruling over all creation. If you're a Christian, you're a future king, a future queen. Over this, You will judge angels, brothers and sisters. You also are on your way to your exaltation, but you also are hunted by a powerful enemy. We just read that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. If you thought Saul was bad, Satan is a million times worse. Satan can so utterly deceive you that you think you're hearing from God when you're hearing lies from the pit of hell. Satan, can, Satan will attempt to destroy you. He will do everything in his power to discourage you. He will do everything in his power to take you from the path to your exaltation. But brothers and sisters, just like David, just like Jesus, you also have a powerful God on your side who will be faithful to fulfill his promises from you and deliver you. Friend, you also have a promise set before you, you have life set before you, that if you faithfully follow God, you will get to that throne. Though you be victimized by death and suffering, though you find yourself oftentimes alone and in despair and weak and helpless, you can trust in God's promises that just as he delivered his Christ from death, just as sure as his Christ sits on the throne, you also will be raised from the dead and go into his everlasting kingdom. You see, David seems to be the farthest point away from his kingdom. By all appearances, it looks impossible. Just like by all appearances, it looks like it might be impossible that we really will reign over creation with Christ. But God is still in control. David knows that God's will is what got him to the cave. He knows that it's God's will that gave him victory over Goliath. And it's God's will which will get him to the throne. And David knows that God's king will get the throne God's way. So because Jesus, as the anointed king, went to that farthest point from being king, he can uniquely comfort and sympathize and provide for his sheep. So, friends, if you find yourself in the position that David is in here, cry out to God for deliverance and mercy. Friend, look to his steadfast love proved to you in Christ. Friends, lament your sorrows to one another. Study God's promises for you in his word. Friend, be nourished by them. These promises being yours does not mean that your trials will not hurt and that you will not have to desperately cry out to God for mercy. But it does mean that your Lord and your God can sympathize with you. It means that he's given you friends. He's given you his word. He's given you deacons and deaconesses and pastors to help you and support you. And it does absolutely mean, Christian, that no matter what you face in this life, it cannot stand in God's way of doing you good by bringing himself glory. But friends, with every moment of severe trial and difficulty, there is also an opportunity to sin. And that opportunity to sin tests the intensity and the strength of our trust in God. When we feel backed into a corner, when we feel alone, afraid, when things don't go our way, heck, when even things are going our way, there is always the temptation to disobey God. And instead of going God's way to the throne, go our own way. Friends, let's look look closely at verse 4. So remember, David's in the innermost parts of the cave. They see Saul come in. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Friends, so David's men see this. They see Saul coming into the cave and they think to themselves, man, we've got our oppressor in the most vulnerable position possible. They think we are never going to get this chance again and one swipe of the sword and all of this can be over. We can stop being hunted like animals. We can go home to our families. We're pretty sure what Saul would do in this situation, like they're saying to David. And so they say to him, hey, if this isn't the day that God said to you that you would triumph over Saul, I don't know what is. So they said to him, you know, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall see good, seem good to you. See, they're so convinced that this is God's will that they just start kind of making stuff up. And who can blame them, Right? I mean, if this isn't like God's hand of providence playing itself out in front of their eyes, you know, what is? But friends, if we read 1 Samuel closely, we'll see that God never told David that he was going to get to kill Saul and in that way would take his throne. But friends, don't we do this all the time in our lives? I mean, I know I sure do. Sometimes we just kind of start making things up when things get hard, right? Right? We say things to ourselves like, hey, God knows nobody can be sinless all the time, right? God knows I'm imperfect. We say things to ourselves like, hey, you know, let me just get this one and then I'll be really good, right? Like I'll tithe a lot, I'll spend a lot of good time in devotions, I'll spend a lot of good time in prayer, and I can ease my burden of conscience and God will forget about my sin, right? We say things to ourselves like, hey, if God is love and God's really love, then he can't mean all those things that he said in his word. You know, God God wouldn't give me these desires and not let me fulfill them. We say things to ourselves like, hey, you know, God, God's good. God will forgive me. And so there won't be consequences for my sin. Friends, we just, these are just lies. We just, we just make them up, right? To ease our burdened consciences. Now, I hope that very few of us have ever been in a position where trusting God was a matter of life and death. But let me submit to you, before you all, that whenever we're tempted to sin, what's on the line is really how much we trust God. I mean, do we believe God? Do we believe God that His way is better? Do we believe God that we're going to the throne and this is the way we have to go? Do we believe God that sin is death? Friends, will you take God at His word and be faithful to your wife? Will you take God at His word and abstain from sexual immorality? Gentle with how you discipline your children? Obedient to your parents? Even when it hurts, will you abstain from gossip? When you feel like you get the worst end of the deal, will you still obey God? Will you still obey God? when it makes you appear weak and vulnerable, when it goes against every fiber of your being that wants that sin so bad, will you still trust God? Sin always tries to creep in and say to us, hey, this is the time to get yours. This is the way that you gotta go to get what you want. This is what's gonna give you life. This is what's gonna bring you happiness. Friends, but David has a different idea. Let's look in verse five. And the end of verse 4. So David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Okay, so imagine this from the perspective of David's men. You know, they're, they're like, all right, now's the time, man. Like, go, go get him, you know. And so they watch David sneak up there, draw his sword, and just cut off a corner of the robe. And they're probably thinking, like, what in the world? Like, I mean, we can hardly imagine this. Have you, has anybody ever seen, uh, you know, like a superhero movie or something where the hero finally gets the villain, alone, vulnerable, just to, like untie his shoe, right? Or like turn his pocket inside out. That's crazy. And not only this, does David not kill him, but David's heart is wounded that he did even this. Look, in in verse five, afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he's the Lord's anointed. So David recognizes that he ought not to harm Saul in any way because even even though Saul has forfeited the kingdom, even though David is on his way to the throne, even though Saul has been a bloodthirsty and ruthless tyrant, he's still on the throne right now by God's will. He's still there right now by God's will. And so God hasn't given permission, David, to do anything to harm his anointed servant. So if Dave, David recognizes pretty clearly that if he's harming Saul, he's going against God's will. He's rebelling against God's will if he takes the throne for himself when it's not the proper time. So David doesn't take Saul's life. And his symbolic act strikes his heart, and he convinces his men not to harm Saul. So he's protecting him now. See, David cares so much more about what is God's will. What does God want? How does God want me to get to the throne that he, he won't kill Saul, and he's wounded that he even took, you know, reached out his hand against him? But friends, how much like Jesus is this? You see, David was tempted to take the shortcut and go against God to get himself to the throne, and Jesus was tempted too. Friends, but this temptation is is about as old as time itself. Remember the Garden of Eden, what Satan said to Adam and Eve. Hey, go to this place where you want to go. go. Go be like God. Take this path to exaltation and go be like God. Or Jesus in the wilderness when Satan said, hey, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours if you bow down and you worship me. Or like when Peter said to Jesus, hey, don't go to the cross. By no means are you going to go to the cross. But Jesus resisted them, choosing instead to go the way of the cross to his exaltation, choosing instead to go God's way to his throne. Like David, Jesus rebuked Peter when Peter violently resisted the men who were arresting Jesus when he was being led away to be tortured. See, Jesus perfectly refused to do anything unlawful on his path to ascending to the throne as the king over the whole universe. And it's, as we read in Philippians, because he was perfectly obedient in all things, even to death on a cross, that he receives the name that is above every name. Jesus loved his father so much, and he was so confident that his father cared about him, that his father would be faithful to his promises, that he cared more about his father's pleasure and his father's will than his own. He said, not my will be done, but yours. He went to the throne God's way. And it's so good that he did, friends, because that way led him to pay for our sins on the cross. Christian, praise God that Jesus was faithful on your behalf. We have to learn from not only David, but Christ's example, that as God's people, we must entrust ourselves to God. As we read in 1 Peter earlier, we must cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. We have no right to disobey or even grumble against God or the anointed ones that he's put in authority over us. But now if someone is listening here and they would use this call to godly submission and obedience as a way to justify their abuse, let me warn you, if you are out here and you are an abuser in any way, God sees you and God will repay you for what you are doing. And this call to godly submission does not justify you in any way. You cannot compel people to sin. You cannot compel people to sin against God and you cannot harm people in any single way. So if you're out here and you're a victim of abuse, do not hear this as a call that you need to just submit to your abuser, that you need to just shut your mouth and be silent, that you need to just take it. Friend, reach out to one of the pastors here, to one of the deacons or the deaconesses. Friend, reach out to anybody in this congregation or this membership if you are being abused and get help. Friend, do whatever is lawful and and permissible before God in his sight to get the help that you need to bring your abuser to justice. Friends, getting help is not being rebellious, and telling someone that you are being abused is not grumbling, and it's not complaining. Friend, what I am saying is that hardship and trials, even matters of life and death, are never an excuse for us to sin. And believers, though, are you looking for an unlawful way out of your hardship? Friends, do we grumble and complain against God or against our bosses when we feel unsatisfied with work? Do we grumble and complain against our spouses because we just need to vent about it? What about against our teachers? What about against people made in the image of God? Friend, do we take the path of sin instead of the path of the cross, practicing sexual immorality because abstinence is too hard? Because we're too stressed, sinning because we're too lonely, envying our neighbor's houses, our neighbor's spouses, our neighbor's cars, their wives, their husbands. Friend, you sin against your government or your authorities because it's too bothersome to obey them, because it's too demeaning to respect them. Friend, if your heart strikes you, take heart. A wounded conscience is a sign of the Spirit's work. So look to Christ in deeper faith, in deeper repentance now. If you want to be after God's heart, friend, we must go God's way. And remember that because of Christ, you too are on your way to your exaltation, the inheritance of Christ's kingdom. And these works like putting sin to death, denying ourselves, submitting to our authorities out of reverence for Christ are the good works that Christ has given us before time to do. Friend, Christ, as we said earlier, can uniquely sympathize with you in these works. And he's also uniquely empowered you to bear these crosses. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you his word. He's given you his friends. He's given you pastors and counselors. Friend, as David's words convinced his men to submit themselves to God's will, would you let these words convince you to go to your exaltation, God's way. But how do we resist sin and temptation? How do we go God's way? Well, we have to know and love what God has said so that we can discern truth from lies. We have to deeply and intimately know God's words that we can say, just like David said, hey, God never gave me permission to kill Saul. We can say, hey, that's not the way that God wants me to go. Friends, just like David persuaded and convinced his men with his words, we have to be close enough to each other to confess sin to each other and to say to one another, hey, brother, sister, this way you're going. You can't go this way. Friend, we have to go God's way. How can we walk on this path together? How can we go God's way together? We have to be close enough to each other to say, hey, you're, you're sinning right now. You're you're sinning, and I know how deeply you, you feel about this. I know how hard this has been. I know how difficult life is for you right now. We need to walk this way together in love. So having spared Saul's life, David allows Saul to get up and leave. Let's look at point three. The table's turned. So now it's David's turn to arise and follow Saul out of the cave. Let's look at how he appeals to Saul. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. So here we see David addressing Saul as the king. Right. Saul goes and he, he goes out of the cave, and David arises and he comes up and he looks down. Oh, he looks above, down, uh, you know, down on Saul, and he says to him, "My lord, the king." Like he's appealing to him as a loyal subject. He bows the earth and he pays homage to him. He begins to try to be winsome to Saul and say, "Look, you know, some told me to kill you. You, you've seen that the, I could have killed you, but I didn't. I spared your life." And then what does David do? Let's, let's keep reading here. In verse 11, he says, See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. So he shows him this trophy. He's like, hey, here's the proof that I don't want to hurt you. Here's the proof that I, 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 I don't want to kill you. Here's the proof that I am merciful to you. And then he goes on, he he appeals to this proverb, he says, Hey, you know, uh, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. He's saying, look at the fruits of what I'm doing. See that I'm not against you, I'm not trying to kill you, I want to show you mercy. And then he, he even goes further to debase himself. He says, after whom has the king of Israel come out in verse 14? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. After a flea. See, David's harmless. He's not going to hurt Saul. He's a dead dog. He's a flea. And then he invokes God's justice. Verse 15, he says, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. He doesn't take the unrighteous path of dispatching Saul. He says, God is going to get you. God is going to judge between me and you. And how does Saul respond? In verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you've dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. So it's like Saul is finally seeing clearly for the first time in this whole thing. It's like he, he, he's saying, oh man, I can see it now. I can see it now. You, you are good and I've been evil. I've been hunting you and you've showed me mercy. You could have killed me, but you didn't. But Saul goes on. You know, it's like he evokes another proverb. He says, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And this should astound us in verse 20. He says, now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. See, Saul knows how this works as he was king over Israel. He knows that God's king must go God's way. He knows that the one who goes after God's heart goes to the throne. So Saul's like, man, look at how obedient you are. Look at how much faith you have in God. Man, You haven't gone the unlawful way. You haven't been unrighteous, so I know that God's going to bring you to the throne. I know that you're going to be king. I mean, he's so confident that David is going to be king that he even asks David for mercy. In verse 21, he says, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. He's so confident that David is going to be king that he asks David to be merciful to him. He can see it as clearly as David is holding up that piece of his robe. Man, you're merciful and I'm wicked. Man, you're good and I'm bad. Man, you're going to be king and I'm going to be deposed. And then our conflict resolves for now. David is good on his promise. He swears this to Saul and Saul goes home David and his men up to the stronghold. See, David still has a long way to go to get to the throne. He doesn't have the crown now. But let's not miss this, friends. God's king gets the throne in God's way. And what is that way? It's marked by suffering. It's marked by pain. It's marked by dissatisfaction, by self-denial. Friend, but it's also marked by mercy. It's the way of righteousness. Friends, it's the way of godly obedience. Friend, think of how Christ took his throne, the rightful king, hunted for his life, refusing the temptation to ease his suffering, to ascend to his throne before the appointed time. Out in the wilderness, out with the animals, in the darkness, with a small band of loyal friends who later deserted him. In the heart of the earth, like David was in the cave, in the grave. But then he arises. He comes out of the heart of the earth. He comes back from the dead only to arise and step out over us to ascend on high to his father's throne and show us what? Mercy, friends. Just like David showed Saul the corner of that robe, Jesus Christ has shown us his hands and his side and his feet and said, look, I've not sinned against you. Friend, I invoked the Lord to judge between me and you, and I let God avenge himself on me for you. That's exactly what it means that Christ suffered on your behalf. He invoked God's justice on himself. He stepped out of the cave over top of us and said, look, I could have killed you. I could have delivered you up to hell itself, but I want to show you mercy. I want to show you love. Christian brother and sister, Christ went that way for you. Christ walked the path of total faithfulness amidst suffering to ascend to his throne for you, not just as an example but for you so that you can too. This is why he's given us all of these things that we've spoken about earlier. He's given you the perfect testimony of his word, his friends, he's given you pastors, he's given you deacons and deaconesses, he's given you one another, he's given you his very Holy Spirit so that you can go this way, so that you can, be, you can go to the very grave, you can die and yet live. So that you can be victimized by the world, by governments, by societies, by by demons, by sin. So that you can die and yet live. So that you can go to the grave and yet live, friends. This is the way to your exaltation, to your resurrection. Friend, it's the way of humility and mercy and obedience. So, Christian friends, hope in God's providence. Friend, hope in the resurrection and the consummation of the Messiah's kingdom. Friends, do not hope in this life. Do not take unto yourselves the symbols of this life and the symbols of its power and its glory because they will pass away. Friends, take up the symbols of God's mercy. Take up the signs of his righteousness. Take up the Lord's Supper. Take up baptism. Take up being received into membership of a local church. Friends, take up the cross. Take up the cross and look to God's mercy. Prove to you. Know that God will be merciful to you. Know that he will be righteous and spare you. Take up the cross. Friends, take up the promise that God's king will have his throne God's way. And that will lead to your resurrection, to your inheritance of the kingdom. If you're here today, though, and you're not a Christian, I wonder if I could just communicate a couple things to you in closing. Friend, we all have to understand that because we're all sinners, we do violence to the kingdom of a holy God, and you deserve to die a traitor's death. Friend, just like we can all relate to David, we've all been victimized. We've all found ourselves in the dark, confused about God's providences. We'll all be victimized by death. We'll all go to the grave, but we're all like Saul too. Friend, you are, if you have not trusted in Christ, a rebel outside of God's will. You're a victimizer a tyrant, you're wicked, you're treacherous, you're a murderer. Friend, you're a hunter of the rightful king. But friend, Christ shows you mercy. Friend, Christ proves to you his mercy on the cross. He proves to you that he wants to be your king and your God and to deliver you from death. By the very fact that you have this Bible in front of you is proof that God is a merciful God. Friend, if you look to Christ, if you repent of your sin and you trust in Christ, Friend, you can know God's goodness goodness, and God will spare your life. You will not have to go to hell. You will be forgiven. You will be given a new heart and a new desire to obey God. You will inherit His kingdom. Friends, if you want to know more about that gospel, feel free to talk to any of the members of this church after the service and ask, hey, how can I know God's mercy? How can I know God's goodness? How can I see the cross? But friend, if you're here and you're hardening yourself against God again in spite of his mercy. If you are like Saul and you will again harden yourself against God's king. Friend, know that Christ will invoke God's justice against you. Christ will invoke God's justice. Friend, you go out against a dead dog, against a flea, against the Lord of glory on a cross Now ascended on high and ruling over all of creation. But, friend, when Christ comes back, if you continue to harden yourself against him, friend, you will know God's justice. He will deliver you into the hand of his Christ, and you will not escape. So turn to Christ, know his mercy. You who struggle on the way with sin, Christian, Know God's mercy. Look to the cross. Look to his mercy proved to you. And thanks be to God that he has proved it to us decisively there. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that we can know the way to the throne. Father, we thank you that we have a good inheritance. We thank you that your Christ has ascended on high to be with his father and that he goes to prepare a place for us. Father, we pray that We would long for that place. We would long to be with Christ and that we would long to know him more in our lives by repentance and faith. Father, continue to open your word to us. Continue to rain down your spirit's blessings on us through our hearts. Father, lead us in the way of everlasting life. Lead us in the way of thankfulness that you have not given us over to the path of death. Father, let us look forward to the day where we will step out of the grave out of the cave, out of the dark, at the resurrection of the body. Let us look forward to the day of our coming king. In Jesus' name, amen.